You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Last Sunday, I concluded the uh, series on the Gospel of Luke, and today I'm doing a message related to our Connection Group ministry and fair because one of the things that you see here often is the phrase that we say we're here to connect you to God one another and the marketplace and a way of looking at this message is in the context of this have you ever noticed that when you go to the doctor for your annual checkup he still cut, brings up the things that he talked to you a year ago and the year prior and the year prior have you ever just wanted to go to the doctor and say, don't you have some other measurements that would shine more favor upon me? You know, you keep bringing up the height, the weight, and the blood count and all that. It's just like you've, you're a broken record. And how many know it's not the doctor's fault, it's our fault, right? And so one of those is we often have people who are joining the bridge, and I want them to understand that this is not just a slogan, but really is what I call a health check on our faith. And so we're going to go to the Gospel of John today, and would everybody stand for the reading of the Word? We're going to be referencing some other scriptures, but this is where we start. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Let's all read together. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and to know and to grow in our faith. That, Lord, it's not just about us, but what you do in us eventually is going to flow out of us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you help everyone on their journey with you, wherever they're at, I pray they can see next steps, next dimensions of what you want to do. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So we're talking today on the topic of growing your faith intentionally. There's two elements that will be uh, uh, referred to, but I would also say it's threaded throughout this message today is this. Number one, nothing is ever going to happen in your life unless you take the initiative. In fact, I would say this, as followers of Christ, one of the things that you might notice is this. As a parent, one of the things that we're trying to teach our children is to learn to take the initiative. And it's a wonderful feeling when you come home one day and something got done 
that you were prepared to give a speech on why didn't you get it done, and it was done. And how many know, as a parent, that's a monumental moment? You pull up and the trash cans have made it to the garage mysteriously. You pull up and the grass has been mowed. You, you walk in the house, your house and the dishes are in the dishwasher. You know, you start to go like, what happened? Who kidnapped my child? And it's just a monument, why? Because we associate initiative with maturity. That's key. And as we grow into adulthood, we start to recognize that taking the initiative is one of the things that causes us to, quote, mature, not just in faith, but mature in life. And the, but the other part of that is this is called intention, intentionality. Because if you haven't recognized by now, there are a million things that are screaming for your attention. And so it's easy to get distracted from what you really need to do. You kind of have to quiet the voices down and just go, what am I going to do? And it's like, and I, and I say, I really applaud everyone for making priori, a church a priority. Because I can tell you that I know, I, I know you don't think I know this, but I do. There are a million things to do on Sunday morning. It's not like you get up and go, well, there's nothing open till 1 o'clock. Let's go to church. No, no, man. I mean, it's. Our culture is 24-7, go, go, go. It's not, you don't come to church because there's nothing on the calendar. You could easily put stuff on the calendar that squeeze that out. So in even coming to church, you have to be very intentional. You've got to take the initiative, and you have to be intentional about it. And so that's just part of life. And so as we look at intentionally growing our faith, I know that that can sound like a concept to some people that's very mysterious because the topic of spiritual growth is a vague concept to a lot of people. They go, yeah, I need to do that. Well, but I'm not quite sure how. I mean, I want to. It'd be great. I'm just not real sure about exactly the, the moves that I need to be making in my life. And so, and even at times it sounds impractical. I've, I've said this to people. It helps if they have a, a, a faith orientation, but sometimes you're talking to somebody who may not have a straight, a, a strong faith orientation, and you say, you know, you really, you really need to uh, uh, grow your spiritual faith. You need to grow more intentionally. And there's that, have you ever seen that look that says, I hear you, but I'm not quite getting what you just said. And it's not, that they're, it's not that they're not open, they just, it sounds so impractical with everything that they have on their plate. They're like, I'm just not quite connecting the dots with what you're saying. Now, if they have a faith background, it helps, but it's really difficult when they don't. And so these words can sometimes isolate them. And so a good analogy I can give you is this, is learning to have the right tools is critical to building anything in life. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, my grandfather, he was a mechanic for 20 years and then a, a builder carpenter for 20 years uh, beyond that. And so being the only grandson, I had no competition. <laughs> so I got all the attention, I got all the learning, I got all the school. So actually, some of you may be surprised, actually uh, no mechanics, I know carpentry. Now, because I, I'm not a master at this now because you know why? Because I'm as slow as anything. Because you, how many know what you don't use, you lose. So I, you know, but I still have the tools and sometimes I'll take on a project at the house or on one of my vehicles just because I like to do that. And then at times my wife will say, please hire somebody. We would like to have this done by the end of the year. 
I know you like to do it, but you know, please just pay to have it done. So, so, but one of the things that happened uh, right after we were married, we were only married a few months, my grandfather, he was in town, and he says, we're going to Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> now, some of the younger ones are like, uh, what is, how many know what Sears and Roebuck is? All right, you now get the opportunity to explain that to the ones who did not lift their hand. And they had, this, they had these tools called craftsmen. My grandfather, he was like, all right, you're going to get a set of craftsman tools because these are lifetime guaranteed, the last set of tools you're ever going to buy. And if you ever break one, you can take it back and get a free replacement, you know. So we're going through the store, and, and he, you know, you can buy these things, you know, I guess like in, in packages, you know, like you don't have to buy the individual tool. You can buy these massive kits or whatever they are. And so yeah, we're walking around, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is one you need right here. Right here, this is one. And then, then it was, oh, you're going to need a toolbox, you know. So we go look for a toolbox. I think it'll all fit in there. And so we got, we got the toolbox. No, all the tools did not fit in the toolbox, not even close. But, you know, it was one of those, and it's like, and I can remember my wife going, man, that's a lot of tools. What, what, why, is he, why is he buying so many tools? Well, and I, I knew why, because my grandfather had taught me this. And, 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 and the principle was that you buy tools not because you have a project. You buy the tools in case you get a project. <laughs> How many men did I just help <laughs> sell your next? Well, you heard the pastor. I need that saw. Well, what's the problem? I don't have a project, but I'm ready if one shows up. You heard the pastor. Got to be ready. No, that was the whole idea. And so I can tell you over the 40 years that we've been together, man, I've, you know, how many times I've gone to that toolbox that I still have. I still have all those tools, you know. I, and, and boom, the tool's there. Boom. And over the years, you know, at first I wasn't sure if I would ever use that tool. or what. But you, you, a need would come up and you, oh man, I need, and you go there and there it is. And if, you, if you've done projects like that, you know half the battle is having the right tool Okay, because otherwise you could spend a lot of time going and getting the tool than working on the problem. And the other part is while you're trying to get the tool, the problem is getting worse, right? And so, uh, and I mean, I, and, and, and tools are adaptive. You know, I still, I still got the screwdrivers and all those kinds of things are still good. Now, sometimes, you know, you, you learn to adapt to the use of a tool. Because I, you know, be working on a project. Oh, man, I forgot the drill. forgot the drill bits. They're downstairs. I didn't think I was going to need one. But, oh, praise God, I've got a Phillips screwdriver. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Come on, man. How many of you have ever used a Phillips screwdriver to punch a hole in some drywall? Can I get a witness this morning? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're like, I am not going downstairs. It's way too much trouble. I'm just going to punch a hole with it. You know, hey, they're lifetime warranty, right? <laughs> I didn't have to tell them how I broke it. I just, anyway. But there's a great analogy here. You know how many times Christians have gone into a crisis because they didn't have their toolbox ready? They're so in the immediacy. Well, if I can't draw a straight line to what I'm learning today and it's going to be used for me tomorrow, then I'm not interested in it. But you know, life has a way of throwing projects at you that you weren't prepared for, and then life happens, and then you go to your toolbox and it's not there. And so while you're trying to find a a connection group or a pastor or a leader to meet with you to help you with your crisis because you didn't have the tools, the problem's getting worse. And then you got to learn how to use the tool 
And that takes time so that you can address the problem. And so as, as I say this as followers of Christ, it's very important that we stay hungry learners. I'm not always addressing a problem in my life. Sometimes I'm just adding to the toolbox. So that if something comes up and I go there, it's there. But when it's not there, it can make the problem worse. And I'm not, I don't know about you, but I got enough troubles on my own. I don't need to make them worse. I need solutions. I need things to be solved. And so part of this is learning how, what are some essential tools that are adaptable. That's our vision statement, connecting people to God, one another, and the marketplace. Those are tools. It will look different from person to person as it plays out. But there are, they are essential tools, I can tell you this, for whatever comes your direction. And so let's begin to go to the first one. I know I've already said it, but say it out loud. Read the first one. Connecting. We read the scripture, John 15, and I'm going to go through this verse by verse. So to kind of show you some things. The best thing, listen to me, the best thing we can do around here is connect you to God. Show you how to do that. Why? Jesus said this. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. So I'd like you to kind of get a mental picture of that. Jesus is the vine. His father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Wow. So it is possible for me, because my faith is not being productive in the way that God intended, it tells me here that my faith can die because I am not connected right. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Well, that, so when you become fruitful, God says, wow, if you can do that, just imagine if I give you a quick trimming. So what, you know what you learn here real quick? God's an investor. He wants fruit out of our life. He goes on, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So this is not about salvation. This is about if salvation has affected my life in the way that Jesus wanted it to, what should my life be producing? It's not that I am producing so I can be saved. It's what am I producing in response to my salvation. Does everybody understand it? John the Baptist had this message. He, his regular message was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The problem was people say, well, I'm all right with God. And he's like, well, I don't know, but there's something wrong with what you're declaring and what I'm seeing. There's a breakdown. Let's move on. He says in verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. That's key. So it's telling me here, it's going to take some intentionality for me to remain connected to, to Christ. Why? Because we have a flesh that constantly wants to run contrary and disconnect. He then says, no branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Can you all see why we want to connect you to God? Because in the end, if we don't do that, your life can never be as God intended. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everybody say, can do nothing. My spiritual life can't grow and develop without Jesus. He said, well, what about other means and ways and other... I'm not the one who said it. He said it. Right? 
He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why it's critical for us in what we say and what we do. And I'll say this, even how we do the service. Have you noticed we're a participatory church? We don't like it when you come and just watch us. We put the lyrics up on the screen. Why? Because the musicians can't remember the lyrics? No, Pastor Malik has a mind like a steel trap. No, we put the words up there. Why? Because we want you participating. When it comes time to passionate core prayer, and we say, let's pray. You notice we put, we put the sentence on, the, on, the, on up there on what we're praying about or what we're praising him about. Why? Because we're participatory. You notice I have you read the scripture with me when I speak, right? Why? Because we're participating. Listen, the best thing that we can do is help you engage. To connect to Jesus requires engagement, not observation. Everybody said amen. amen. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, so it's saying you can get there and it's possible to back off. You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burn. Man, that's kind of dark to know that, man, if, if I, it's possible for me to unplug in my, it's not Jesus that unplugged. It says that we have the ability to unplug. And as a result, God's activity doesn't come our direction. We're set aside. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Everybody likes that last half of the verse and they forget the qualifications on the front end of the verse. It says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, get this, if that's happening, you're praying his agenda, not yours. Ah, everybody always thinks, well, it says right there I can ask whatever I want. No, it doesn't say you can ask whatever you want. It says if his word is remaining in you, then you will be asking, and what you will be asking will be based on his word. And he said heaven and earth will pass away before anything that his word does. So when we pray the word, we're good. I just may not know how it's going to answer, but I know there will be an answer. Then you move on to verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Two things. By staying connected to God, it says that when I bear fruit, it brings glory to Him. But it also is one of the ways that I prove to the world that I'm different. Not that I'm trying to say that I'm better. It just... There's a key point here for us. Sometimes as Christians we go, well, I just, I just want to fit in. Are you sure you want to do that? How about we want to show them there's a better way? Maybe, maybe there needs to be something different about us that I think causes the world to go, why do you care so much? Why, does, why, why, do you, why do you put your time, your effort, your emotions, your energy? Why does, why, does, why does that cause you to do what you do? And I think it's a key point to say because if Jesus did in your life what he did in mine, you'd have to. I'm not, I'm not working off my salvation. Listen to me. I'm expressing it. Everybody catch that? It's not about working salvation off. It's about expressing I want, to sh I want to show outwardly what he did inwardly. 
That's why I care. That's why I get involved. That's why I do what I do. That's, yeah, that's, that's why I go the extra mile. That's why I do, that's why my work is, is I strive for excellence because I'm not just working for a company and getting a paycheck. I understand my, my work is a form of worship. And so why wouldn't I build the best, do the best, design the best? Because I'm, I'm, I'm showing the world that I'm worshiping him through what I do. So here's a couple things that I've said over the years. I had to use, I actually used this recently. And it's with this, people who struggle connecting to God, people who are resistant. And a lot of times there's a prior experience with Jesus and they go, look, I... I get you, you know, you're a pastor, you know, you probably had, you know, this perfect childhood and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, but mine, here's what happened to me and here's what I had to walk through. And, you know, I just kind of found myself backing away from the faith. And, you know, I'm kind of interested and thought I'd talk to you. And, and sometimes in that conversation, I understand the baggage of life that can cause a person to have a, a tough time engaging in their faith again because of things that have happened. But what I always make sure to say, and I said this not too long ago to a guy I was meeting with, I said this, if a perfect God can't make you happy, where do you find your happiness? I'm just, you realize after the perfect God, it's all imperfect. And you're telling me a perfect God can't do it for you. I'm worried about the people that you have expectations of because they're all imperfect. And boy, the day they let you down, and they will, it's, it's, it's a process of life. There is nobody who's perfect. Eventually, we all let somebody down. And if your standard is not even a perfect God makes me happy, man, I feel sorry for the person who lets you down one day. It's going to be an ugly scene. It's going to be a difficult time. And the other part that I will sometimes say to a person, and I said it in this conversation not too long ago, if you won't trust and follow a perfect God, what exactly are you trusting and following? You know what the response was? I just follow my heart. I said, boy, that's dangerous. I said, I'm not looking at your heart saying that. I'm looking at my heart saying that. I'm just telling you. Our hearts can deceive us. We can be so sincere. We are authentic and we are genuine, but we are capable of being dead wrong when we're sincere. In fact, those are the really tough ones that mess us up. Not recognizing that even in my best efforts, I can't be perfect. And so what are you trusting and what are you following? See, that's the thing. You always say, well, I don't have anything. Oh, yeah, you do. That means you're following the whims of your desires. Even by saying, well, I really don't have anything that I follow. Oh, yeah, well, you're following your, the whims of culture in your life. Everybody in this room is following and trusting something. If only you say, my instincts. I don't know about you. There's a high risk of failure in that one, too. So again, if a perfect God can't do it for you, where are you looking for happiness? If you can't trust and follow him as a perfect God, what are you trusting? What are you following? And that's why I say the best thing we can do 
is help you to show you, show you how you can connect to God. And everybody said amen. amen. That's a tool you're going to need. Promise me. You're going to need that tool one day. Number two, say it out loud. Connecting, connecting to one another. This is jumping to John chapter 17. And this is an interesting passage because this is where Jesus is praying in the garden. And it's ironic that John is the one who seems to capture uh, so much of what Jesus was praying at that particular time. So this is Jesus. And we're, notice we're picking it up in verse 20. So we're, it's, it's amazing to think the mind that John must have had to been able to capture so much of what Jesus was saying in this particular time. But he, Jesus says this, my prayer is not for them alone. This is referring to his, 12, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. Wow. Jesus prayed for you and me in his hour of crisis. How many would like to know what he had to say? Okay. Three of you. Listen to this. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice he says, I want them to get along with one another and I want them to get along with us. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is saying, I want those imperfect people to love one another because they're going to use the imperfections as an excuse not to. Now you know what some people's definition of unity is? Unity is when you see it my way. Now we have an agreement. You know what disunity is? You don't see it my way. So that means you got a problem. I'm serious. That's most people's working definition of unity and disunity. Unity means, okay, bless you. You see it my way. Now we can have harmony. Disunity is, well, you're not seeing it my way. I'll pray for you. Come on, we all do it by instinct. And Jesus is saying, you need to figure out a way to love one another in spite of all your differences. And the other part of this is understanding the vitalness of needing one another. Certainly, as a pastor, I run across people who say, yeah, I used to do the church thing because I'll invite them. Yeah, 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 I know what you guys do. I know what, that's your job as a pastor, invite me to. But you know, I'm pretty good serving Jesus. I found out I could do Jesus pretty well without having to go to church and be involved. I'm, I'm doing good out here. And I think this, I wonder how much of God's activity they're missing. Because God sends his activity through people. And because they're not connected, I think, I wonder how much they're not seeing. And the other point is this. I wonder who they're not helping because of the activity that God wants to send through them to help. How many people are not being helped because they're disconnected? See, we, we've sometimes, we go, well, it's a personal relationship. Yeah, it's a personal relationship that is lived out in community. You need to finish the sentence. Yes, it is. Accepting Christ is a personal decision, but it is lived in community. Because look what the apostles wrote, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Paul wrote this. Everybody read this with me. 
You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. What am I supposed to do with this freedom that Jesus supposedly set me free from my sins? Hallelujah! What do I do with that freedom? It says there I should be using it to serve people. Then you come to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Let's read this together. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So God says, I expect the giftings that I've given to you to be used in the community of other people. Those gifts don't necessarily belong to you. God wants to use those gifts to serve other people. So again, you come back to how many people have cried out to God for an answer and they went to the toolbox and the one another was not in the toolbox. I've heard this statement from people. I was in this crisis and nobody cared. You know why? Because you went to the toolbox and there was no relationships. You, listen to me. You can't help somebody you don't know. How am I supposed to help if I don't even know who you are? Which means I probably don't even know you have a need. So how can I care when I don't know who you are? Because you've disconnected. Listen, this is not only a critical example of what happens in a church. This happens in society about how God uses people. This past week I had the opportunity to be in some forums that were really, I'll just say this, eye-opening to me. And on Wednesday... I had the uh, opportunity to hear from some of the Israeli embassy staff. And, 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 and some of the things that they were saying, one particular story uh, was about President Harry Truman and his role in forming the uh, state of Israel. And so after hearing a little bit about this, I made sure I got the book and I devoured the book immediately. And consequently, I am now just going to give you a quickly summarized version of that book. And everybody said, thank you, Pastor. <laughs> what most people don't know is, is how the state of Israel became a nation. They don't know how it happened. They know that it happened. and They have a few dynamics. But let me take you behind the scenes of how President Truman got himself involved. After the war, you had all these Jews who were displaced all over Europe after being released from hiding, captivity. And the problem is they couldn't go home because their homes and their businesses had been given to other people and they weren't willing to give it back. So you have millions of people like, where do we go? What do we do? We have no. And so the advisors to President Harry Truman said this, don't get involved in Europe's problem. You've brought them home. You brought our people home. Stay out of it. Don't go there. If he had any inkling of getting involved, it was sealed that he wouldn't because some of the Jewish leaders here in America got really, I'll say, dirty in politics trying to influence him and say negative things about him in public, hoping that would cause him to act. And when history, we now know President Harry Truman's personality. That was the worst thing you could have done to him. And so Dr. Uh, uh, Rose, uh, our Wiseman, who was the, trying to get an appointment with uh, President Harry Truman. Harry Truman had finally had enough, went to his, his secretary and said, I don't want to he 
any appointments from Dr. Wiseman or anybody representing the Jewish people. I don't appreciate what they're saying and trying to corner me, making brash statements about who I am and what I'm like, and so don't even put them on the schedule. Shut it down. Well, President Truman had a friend named Eddie Jacobson. Eddie was a very close friend. He was Jewish. President Truman was a Baptist. How many know Jewish and Baptist? Don't get any further than that. <laughs> they met in boot camp. They served in World War I together. Harry Truman was over the unit. Everybody in Harry Truman's unit made it home alive. Now, if you understand the tactics that were being used in World War I, that was a miracle. And he and Eddie actually went back to Kansas City. They opened a business together. And so they had a, a lifelong relationship of living close to each other, not only serving in battle, but doing business together. And one day, Harry felt like he needed to start running for office, so he ran for a local office and then state and so on and so forth. But they always kept that friendship. But one thing Eddie was sure of this, he would never ask a favor of Harry Truman because he was a friend. And people tried to pressure him at time to get involved in influencing Harry Truman and he just said, I'm not doing that. Harry's a friend. When he comes to my house, he's a friend. When I go to his house, I'm a friend. Politics is off the table when we are together. He's a friend. We served in the military together. No, I will never, never do that. Finally, Eddie was watching the state of Israel being flux. He jumped on a train. He went to Washington, D.C. And this is the great mystery of the story, which I call a God thing. He walked right through security. He walked into the White House. Nobody said anything. He made his way to where Harry Truman's office was. His secretary was there. She never said a word to him. He walked right into President Harry Truman's office and sat down. And President Truman turned around and said, Eddie, what are you doing here? You weren't on the schedule. He said, I don't know. I just walked in. Nobody said anything. <laughs> True story. Just walked straight in. He said, well, since you're here, what's up? He said, I, you, you probably know how I feel about this Israel thing. All I'm asking, will you have a conversation with Dr. Weissman? That's it. Just talk. I think both sides are misunderstanding each other. I'm asking you to have a conversation with Dr. Weissman, please. You don't have to agree. You don't have to like what he says. But Harry, I'm asking you to talk to him. Harry Truman stood there for a little bit, and he finally said, okay. Eddie, I trust you. I'll talk to him. After meeting with Dr. Weissman, Harry Truman came out in support of the state of Israel. And when they formed the state of Israel, everybody in his cabinet said, don't make the call because when you make the call, you're recognizing them as a nation. 19 minutes after Israel was formed, President Truman picked up the phone and made the first call to the nation of Israel, and the new president of Israel was on the other end, Dr. Weissman. And he said, welcome to the status of nations in the world. It's an honor to have you among us. And of course, all the other nations felt pressured to follow suit, and they did so. Israel 
was birthed because of connecting to one another. It was a friendship. It wasn't politics. Yeah, there was politics, and I know how books get written. But in the end, it was a personal friendship that turned it around. And I say that for this. Eddie went to the toolbox, and what he needed was there. Sometimes we make friends. We're not playing friends. We're not trying to manipulate. We're not trying to... But I'm just telling you, you just don't know where a friendship can go and what it can do. And you keep it in the toolbox because it's valuable. You, and one day when you go there, that tool will be there. Invest in people not because you're playing them. That's just how God works. He works through people. Minister to one another. Get connected. It's messy. Yeah. But love covers a multitude of sins. Love each other. And everybody said amen. amen. All right. Number three, the last part. Read it out loud. Connecting. This often is the, well, I would say this is probably the most frequent question we get from new people about, so what's the bridge all about connecting to the marketplace? Are you guys like trying to take over? You have businesses in town, what's that, you know, so it does require explanation because without understanding it, it can sound like, okay, what's up? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. Does it say you're the light of the church? What does it say? You're the light of the what? So what I do has to make a difference outside the four walls of this place. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. It doesn't say only to other Christ followers. Everyone. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I'm supposed to do things, not for the purpose of showmanship, but what I do should be of such excellence and make such a difference that somebody asks me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Let my deeds shine before men. Can I tell you how often this generally plays out? God lets you see a problem, and then he gives you a solution, and then he recruits you. There's some people here today who a few months ago approached me about a crisis in the community where they live. And they were sharing some of the details about that. And, and so as we're conversing about this and what their response should be about this crisis that's happening and they're part of the community, I also noticed that as I conversed with them, they had solutions. And I said, well, sounds like to me, you've come to me asking me what you think you ought to do and how you ought to act. And it sounds like not only that, but it sounds like God may want you to run and do something. They said, no, we're, we're just here to talk to you about what's wrong and how we can fix it. So, well, I'm hearing that God's given you the solution. 
and that you may need to put your hats in the ring. Well, that's not why we came to talk to you. <laughs> Long story short, there was election in that part of the community and they were unanimously voted in. And the problem is being resolved, if not has already been resolved. Now say that, it, one of the things that we avoid at the bridge is this. We're trying not to have all this church activity that saddles you to where you can't go into the marketplace and make a difference. Some people, well, you know, you ought to be having Sunday night churches, and you ought to be having Wednesday night, and you ought to be. And I say, yeah, but if we do that, then all of our people can't be on Main Street where they need to be. So we do Sunday, and we do connection groups, and we have them seven, literally six days a week, okay, so that it can fit their schedule. Why? Because in the end, we want those people getting on the boards of the community. We want them serving. We want them helping. We want them to be in those venues. We want them influencing those places. Why? Because that we're called to be the light in front, notice this, before others. It doesn't say before other believers, which includes others. Others includes them. But listen, we're, we want to help you find an expression in this community where some good, where some, some things that maybe aren't right, some good, would be a good solution, and you're the person that can deliver that. By the way, see, this is, I'm going to, if you don't stop asking questions, I'm not going to get through this, okay? <laughs> this has been the challenge of the arts. We've so bad-mouthed the arts, we don't let anybody do the arts, and then we sit back and complain about how dark the arts are. Well, for Pete's sakes, we pulled everybody out. We removed the salt. So that's why Pastor Malik is teaching the young people and even some of the adults on the arts and getting them involved. You, you know, you saw some of the things that youth were doing. They did art and photography and poetry and short sermon and music and drama and dance. And it just, there's a whole litany of things and categories that these kids, why? Because the reason the arts is so dark, the church preached against getting involved in it and we removed all the salt. And then we complain about how dark it is. No, we created the problem by telling people leave it. We should have been equipping them. Now, I will say this. Yes, you've got to have a strong moral compass to get into some of that stuff. Yes. But I can tell you this. Absence was not the solution. So it's time for people to re-engage. To get on the main streets to get into the marketplace, to get into the athletic clubs, to get into those various types of clubs that are out there. Hey, it's time to start being light. Amen? Amen. But can I tell you something? You better make sure you got a good toolbox. Because you don't want to be found reaching, to, reaching for something and it's not there. That's why I always commend you for making time on Sunday because we're trying to help you build a toolbox so that when you reach in there on Thursday morning, it's there. I've got what I need to address the crisis. And everybody said amen.